Long time no see. Uh, Would you pray with me as we get rolling? Father, thank you for another day of life. Thank you for the sunshine and the rain all in one day. Thank you for the reminder of your beauty and your sovereignty and your intention. Thank you for the gathering. Thank you that you've designed us to do this. Thank you that you've wired us to sing together like that. And we ask that you will reveal yourself in the midst of this gathering, that you will make yourself known as we sing about you and to you and as we study your word. God, we want to see you glorified. And here as we uh, open up your word and look at the book of Jonah, we ask that you'll help me to get out of the way, that you'll make yourself known, that the gospel will go forth, that you will change us and make us more like your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay. Uh, I got to be honest with you guys, this sermon series that you guys have been doing now for, I don't even know how long, uh, that I've been jumping into and out of, uh, has stretched me a little bit. Uh, it's been a little bit different for me. Preaching through large chunks of the Bible in one motion rubs against my natural instincts. I typically preach through just a handful of verses at any given time. That's what I do at the other church that I work at. Um, but again, for those of you who are new or are visiting, uh, the sermon series that we are in, that Scum is in, is an overview of the Bible. Uh, it's a 30,000-foot view of Scripture and how it all points to Jesus. Uh, that's, it's this beautiful storyline that you see built into the whole of Scripture, and we're still comfortably in the Old Testament, uh, although I think only for a few more weeks. Uh, but today... That brings us to the book of Jonah. And here in just a minute, we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, The very first time I preached here, which was a while ago now, uh, I had us read a very large chunk of scripture to go with that sermon. And we're going to do the same thing today. We're going to read the entire book of Jonah uh, together because I think it's worth it. Uh, But before we do that, I want to lay a little bit of a foundation uh, so you know what's happening going in. Jonah is a super famous story. You've probably all heard the story of Jonah regardless of your background in church. Um, Jonah is, uh, as a book, it is both profoundly relatable and super short. Uh, The character of Jonah, uh, the person of Jonah was emotionally unstable. I'd wager that's some of us. He's emotionally unstable. He is prone to disobeying God. I can certainly relate to that. And yet God still uses him. Yet God still uses him. The pastor of uh, the church that I got saved at comes to mind, actually, as I say that. Uh, That pastor, uh, with the the benefit of hindsight now, it's been years since I was at that church, but we've come to find out that he was emotionally unstable. Uh, we, we, we find, we found out years in the aftermath that he was, uh, he was prone to really fierce outbursts of anger. He'd lash out at people. Uh, he actually drove people out of leadership in the church that questioned him. He was prone to disobeying God. He overspent church money in absurd ways. If I told you, you wouldn't believe me. Uh, he, he refused to be held accountable by the people in his life. Mercifully, uh, he's since been removed from leadership in the church, and yet, I say that, God used him to communicate the gospel and and communicate it to me. In many ways, that's my story, too. I grew up in the church but didn't like it. I'll bring that up again in a minute. But I thought ministry was a joke, and yet here I am, 
God continues to use me, and that's Jonah, right? And so before we open it, there's going to be a handful of people kind of rotating up here to read uh, the book together. But before we do that, a couple of bits of context for you. First, we don't know who wrote Jonah. We don't know who wrote it or when it was written. Uh, Second, we do know when the events approximately take place, uh, somewhere in the 8th century B.C., And that's because of uh, another thing we see in Scripture. We figure out where and when the events take place. Third, whoever the author was, he or she was really, really gifted. There is a whole bunch of creativity in the Hebrew, and the story is tight. You know the way a a good storyteller tells a story from beginning to end? You're following, you're engaged. Whoever wrote this is a really talented storyteller. And fourth and finally, Jesus had some really important things to say about Jonah. Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 12, it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. All right? Uh, So with that in mind, the book of Jonah was something that Jesus used formally like this sermon series. So this sermon series is going through the whole of Scripture and saying, okay, this is where we see Jesus. This is how Jesus is at work. This is how it points to Jesus. And Jesus himself took Jonah and said, that's about me. That's about me. And he did that with several other characters in the Bible, but Jonah is specifically named by him. So as we read it here, I want to invite you to keep that readily in mind. What does Jonah teach us about Jesus? What does this book show us, both specifically and generally? Because we're going to go micro and macro here in a second. So, Dave, I don't know who you asked to read, uh, but we're going to read the book of Jonah together. (laughs) I get to go first because Jonah is my favorite. Uh, I'm just, I'm not going to steal any of your thunder here. Um, yeah, I love Jonah. People are like, when you hear the whole story, you're like, why? I just think he's one of the more human of the Old Testament characters that we hear. Like God says, Hey, do this thing. He's like, Nope. Uh, and then he does it and then he pouts about it. It's pretty great. Like I just, I relate on a lot of levels to Jonah. But let's read it here tonight. I'm going to do chapter 1, and then some other folks are going to come up and read the other bits. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. 
Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his god. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your god. Perhaps the god will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then he said. To, then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done it as you pleased. Have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord, out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and he heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up from my life from the pit. O Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land.
Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Uh, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down upon the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he says, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, where there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay. We've got a fairly limited amount of time uh, and a lot to do, uh, but what did you hear there? There are a couple of things that Jesus explicitly wants us to see about Jonah that, that ultimately point to him and he fulfills, and then there's a couple of implicit things that we learn about Jesus as well. So that's how we're going to break it down. We're going to go explicit and implicit. First, the first thing that we see about Jesus through Jonah is that Jesus loves and extends mercy to people because of who he is, not because of who they are. 
I'll say that one more time. Jesus loves and extends mercy to people because of who he is and not because of who they are. That is a major thread that gets woven into the book of Jonah. In chapter 1, you see it. uh, God tells Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil evil has come up before me. Jonah chapter 3, and the people of Nineveh believed God. A little bit later... When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, he relented of the disaster. And then in chapter 4, talking to to Jonah, he says, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city? Right? God is expressing his love and care and mercy for a people that up to this point, nobody really knew that he cared about. This is fundamentally the ministry of Jesus. Just earlier today, I heard a sermon out of Mark chapter 2, where Jesus himself says, he's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, the lowest of the low, and he says, I've come for the sick. I've come for the, right- I've come for the sinners, not the righteous. And so we see here the sins of those Assyrians still needed to be atoned for. God expressed his love for them. This is a rebellious group of people and all rebellion against God is deserving of punishment. So in order for mercy to be granted to the Ninevites, their punishment needed to be absorbed. And that's that's a task that only one person in history was up to, and that's Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the gospel in a nutshell. God came down as a man and lived the life we were supposed to live. Since we couldn't do that, he also died the death that we deserve. So he takes on the punishment that we were due. He took on the punishment of the Ninevites. And we and they get new life in him. That offer applies to everyone and it applies to the Ninevites. The Ninevites, just so you guys, I'm going to use these terms interchangeably. The Ninevites were Assyrians. So when I say Assyrians, I'm referring to the Ninevites here. So it applies to them as well. Their sins were atoned for by Jesus. His love is proclaimed through the ministry of Jonah. That's the first explicit thing that we see about Jesus. The second, Jesus calls specific attention to, uh, Jonah 1 verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jesus, we read it earlier, referred directly to that. And here's the lesson. Here's the lesson. In the same manner that Jonah's time in the dark, disgusting belly of a fish in the same way that that represented transformation for himself and the Ninevites, in that same manner, Jesus would spend three days in the darkness of the earth in order that transformation could be made available to all. All right, so there's the logic. There's the logic. That's the thing that Jesus is pointing to. When he says, or when the scribes and Pharisees come up to him saying, we want a sign, we want to know, we want to believe that you are who you say you are, Jesus says, look at Jonah. The message of Jonah's ministry is all you're going to get from me. And that's referring ultimately to his death and his burial. It's a powerful concept. Redemption, new life, does not come without a cost. Broken people are not made whole without a cost. Think about it practically. If a person, this may be you, it may not be, I don't know. If a person has a mental or a personality disorder, finding wholeness and fulfillment in this life 
ends up requiring a lot of sacrifice and cost and time and intention. Same idea applies on a soul level, on an eternal scale, on a spiritual level. God loves you and wants to make you whole in Christ, but it came at a great cost to Him. And Jonah confirms that cost. He confirms that that cost was worth it in Jonah chapter 2. When, when Jonah's in the belly of the whale and he says, but, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That cost is associated with victory. So that redemption, it, it, it takes a cost, it takes a toll, and yet it becomes worth it. That, that saving grace. So regardless of whether or not you're a Christian in here, the mistake that we tend to make is thinking that we can find wholeness, we can find fullness, we can find goodness on our own. And it's not true. But that's a mistake. If you're not a Christian and you're in here tonight, then you are, odds are you're looking for the fullness of life. You're looking for goodness. You're looking for healthy relationships. You want things to go well. And ultimately, you can't have that apart from Jesus. And if you're a Christian tonight, there's this tendency, I've seen it, I work in ministry, to enter in, to believe in Jesus, and then think, okay, all that's figured out. Now I've got to go get my life together. It's ultimately the same mistake. We cannot have wholeness. We cannot have fullness apart from Christ. So those are the explicit things that he's pointing to. You can't, have, you can't have redemption without a cost, and yet Jesus loves all people and pursues them in his own timing. All right? So those are the explicit things, and that's ultimately what this sermon series is about. But I want to get implicit. What else can we see about Jesus based on the book of Jonah? And this is where it starts to get really interesting. You see three more big picture things that are implied here about Jesus. The first... The first is that he's present. He's present. The theology, the theological term is that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. He's inescapable. And you saw it at the beginning of the book of Jonah when Dave was reading. It says this, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to that country, away from the presence of the Lord. But, but, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. This idea is critical as we think about who Jesus is and as we think about who God is. God is with us in this room right now. God is also outside of this room in the neighborhood right now. He's also in the middle of Africa Right now. He's also at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. Right now. And he's also at the very edge of our ever-expanding universe. Right now. Now don't hear anything like pantheism there. God is not everything and everything is not God. God's outside his creation. He spoke everything into existence. He's outside of it and yet he's actively at work in it. So, and here's what's fascinating about Jonah. Maybe you're like me and like Jonah on this. When Jonah makes a run for it, when God tells him, hey, go preach, go send this message to this people group, and Jonah says, no, thank you, 
and goes the exact opposite way. When Jonah makes a run for it, deep down he knows he's being ridiculous. And I'll prove it to you. He knows he's being ridiculous when he does that. Because when the sailors come to question him and they're like, yo, first of all, why are you sleeping? You're insane. Second, who do you worship? We're trying to hedge our bets here. We're, what, what can we do to eliminate this storm? Jonah's answer is really revealing. He says, in Jonah uh, 1 verse 9, he says, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. That last little bit, the sea and the dry land, is, it's a tool in the Hebrew language that means God of everything. It's, it, it represents totality. So as he's running from God, he's not naive to the fact that, hey, I'm, God's here too. God, God made all of this. God's everywhere at once. It's a fascinating thing. And hopefully, this idea serves as an encouragement to you. Because it could be received as kind of scary that God's everywhere you are at all times. But hopefully it's an encouragement because there is nowhere, I repeat, there is nowhere that you can go that God is not already there. When you are at your very worst, God's there and He's accessible. When you feel the least loved, God is there and He's ready for you. Alright? So that's the first implicit thing we see about Jesus. He's present. Second, this is what's unique about His presence. He's everywhere. And while being everywhere, He is proactively pursuing people. So while being in this room, He's pursuing us right now. And remember, we've already discussed that He loves all people. He's also on the move. Chasing after them. That's the second thing. So the first thing is he's present. The second thing is he's proactive toward people. Right? The same verses we just read out of Jonah chapter 1, but Jonah rose to flee from the presence of the Lord. So he paid the fare and went down into it, away from the presence of the Lord, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Though Jonah rebelled against God and went the opposite, literally, so far as he knew, the opposite direction of where God wanted him to go, God still went after him. And here's the thing, my story fits nicely in there. Maybe yours does too. Um, I grew up in the church. From I, I think I was born in the church. I, I've just been in it for a long time. I grew up in it. And yet, I really didn't care for it. <laughs> Uh, was not into... I pretended to be <laughs> to get my parents off my case, but I really wasn't into the church thing. And in high school, um, in high school, I had a private conversation with God. And I will summarize it for you. I said, God, you can shove it. You can do your thing. I'm going to go do my thing. And I think this is going to work out better for everyone. And yet, <laughs> without asking very many questions, God pursued me anyway. He pursued me anyway. And, and, and that's what's fun about it, is he's always creative in how he goes about it. God's pursuit of people 
involves their circumstances. In Jonah's case, they were pretty unique circumstances. Jonah runs directly from God. God chases after him, uses a huge storm. A group of probably really average, really scared guys who didn't want to throw him overboard, but what the heck, why not? We'll try it. A random group of guys who had no idea what was coming. And then a giant fish. Those circumstances are pretty unique to Jonah. But... That's, there's a lesson there. God uses the circumstances in our lives to draw us to himself. In my case, I told God he could shove it. And yet, I can give you three very specific things God did to draw me back. First, I was a sports guy. I know that's not everybody's story in here, but I was a sports guy. God gave me a new coach that was a believer. And frankly, he had pretty bad theology. <laughs> but... The one thing that he hit on over and over and over again was God's grace. I had a new coach. New church. That church I previously mentioned. (laughs) New church. For the first time in my life, I went to a church that I didn't actively dislike. And third, my parents. My parents are really young. uh, But they grew to love me in a way that didn't feel connected to my performance. So using those three circumstantial realities, God drew me back to himself and changed me. Through my circumstances, God changed me. Through Jonah's circumstances, God changed Jonah. And again, you see it as he starts to pray. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried and you heard my voice, whatever the circumstances are going on in your life, probably some good and probably some bad, God's using them toward his ends. I hope again that encourages you. So that's the second implicit truth. Jesus is present, but he's also in pursuit. He's proactive toward people. And then we see the ends to which he is pursuing people. And this one Uh, I'll be honest, as I wrote this sermon, this one uh, is bittersweet. It's really sweet on the front end. But then as you think about its applications, it becomes a little bit bitter. So God is present, he's in pursuit, and then the ends are his grace. His grace. He's full of grace. We see it in his interactions with quite literally every single person in the book of Jonah. Starting with Jonah himself, the rebellious, disenchanted follower. God has grace for his followers. And I will speak for myself here. I feel, and this is coming from somebody who's worked in ministry for quite a few years now, I feel like at times, rhetorically, we communicate all about God's grace for non-believers, and we so easily forget about His grace toward believers. Once we've gotten saved, once you've entered in, once you've received what God is showing you, it can feel like we're supposed to then have it all together. We're supposed to not be sinning anymore. We're supposed to talk to other people about Jesus. We're supposed to have a strong, spiritual, disciplined life. And all those things are true. But God has grace even for those of us that are imperfectly following Him. 
And you see it from Jonah. You see it really easily from Jonah. This prophet of God who hears a word from the Lord and says, yeah, got it, and then does the opposite. He does the opposite. You may be a Christian, but you may be struggling. God has grace for you. You may know a Christian who's struggling. God has grace for him and her. That's the reality. That's, and that's just one of the characters in this story. Second, second, the entirely normal, briefly mentioned sailors. This group of guys that is literally just, they're just trying to do their jobs. They're just trying to sail a boat to another place. They end up encountering God himself in a terrifying way. And it's certainly something they'd never forget. Look at it. It's Jonah chapter 1. Therefore, they, being the sailors, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Right? We don't know if that was a saving work. The, the term for fearing the Lord there is pretty general. It could have been a momentary thing. It could have been a life-altering thing. We're not exactly sure. But here's the deal. God is at work in the other people's lives, in other people's lives, even as, even as He's at work in yours. So maybe tonight, you still aren't all that sure about God, but you can't stop hanging around scum. I know that's been a lot of people's stories in terms of the on-ramp at scum. Maybe that's you. God has grace for you. God wants you. And all the people you interact with on a day-to-day basis, all the normal people just trying to do their jobs, the baristas, right? The, the, the clerks at a grocery store, the folks at a gas station, God's got grace for them. He's got grace for them. Third uh, and finally on this list, the hard one, the Ninevites. The Ninevites. I've, I've held off on this point until now. Jonah's hatred of the Ninevites wasn't so simple as him being a racist. Though, that may very well have been a factor. He may have been a racist. That's, uh, there was an ethnocentrism, certainly uh, a national focus with the people of Israel because they were God's people and they were a geopolitical state. And so some of those tendencies may be there, but it's not that simple the reality is that the Assyrians, this group, the, the group that Nineveh, the Nineveh represents, up to this point in human history, they were one of the most aggressive and evil populations in existence. And God had told the Israelites that he would use them to, to discipline, to punish the Israelites for their rebellion. So when God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, it's not just some random group of Gentiles that Jonah's being racist about. When God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, he's telling Jonah to offer mercy to the evil people, to the the powerful people, people who had oppressed Jonah's people. God doesn't just have grace for the least in society, though he certainly does in extra measure. 
God also has grace for the evil and the powerful. So maybe you have actively opposed God. He has grace for you. Maybe you've actively opposed the church. He has grace for you. So he's present, he's proactive, and he's full of grace. And I want to finish this with a little bit of application. The final question that God asks Jonah is fascinating if you were paying attention. Jonah chapter 4, starting in verse 9. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And this is how the book of Jonah ends. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? Two little things for you to wrestle with as we wrap this night up. The first one. God's mercy, His intention, His pursuit will always, always, always be able to overcome our spiritual rebellion and deadness. He is that good and He is that powerful. So no matter... Where you were when you came in here this evening, God can do a work in you that leaves you fundamentally different. I'll speak, I mean, just my, take my story. I used to think ministry was a joke, and yet here I am for years now. God can change your story fundamentally, regardless of where you came in tonight. Maybe you've got it all together. God can change your story. Maybe it couldn't get any worse. God can change your story. There is no amount of spiritual deadness or rebellion that he cannot overcome. Second, this final question to Jonah is really interesting because we don't know how Jonah answers. A good author would end a story like this with a rhetorical question to the audience, and that's what this is. It is a question that God posed to Jonah, but it's a question that God would pose to all of us. And here's why. God is full of grace. But His primary means of showing His grace to other people is through you. That is His primary choice in extending grace to other people. He wants to do it through you. He wanted to extend grace to the Ninevites through Jonah. It's a powerful calling. He wants to love rebellious Christians through you. He wants to love normal folks that you interact with through you. He wants to love the evil and the powerful through you. Not just the people you like, not just your friends, not just your family. He wants to extend His love and His mercy through you. And I want to add... Uh, a caveat there. <laughs> I want to add a caveat there. God chooses to do it through you. He doesn't need you. He wants to use you. He longs to use you. 
And one more thought on this. Uh, this one's personal for me because maybe I struggle with it more than you do. The person who experienced God's grace most repeatedly throughout the story is Jonah. Jonah's the person who theoretically was closest to God. God wants to extend grace to the people that you are closest to through you. And we tend to do the opposite, just generally speaking. We tend to extend grace pretty easily to people we don't know. To the the random people we interact with on a day-to-day basis. It's your families and the people in your church and the people, other people you're close to that we tend to not show grace to. And yet, that's where God shows the most grace. So will you let God show His grace to others through you this week? Will you extend His grace and ultimately His kingdom by loving other people the way that He loves us? All right? I've been wrestling with that all week, and it stings if you, if you pay attention. All right, let's pray, um, and we're going to switch gears and take communion together. Father, thank you that you're honest with us. Thank you that you're present right now. Thank you that you will be present as we commune together and we continue to sing to you together. Thank you that you're proactive, that you're revealing yourself to us. Show us something new. Show us something different. Reveal our own hearts to us. And then help us, in your grace, to extend that to others. And not just the people we're comfortable with. We want to see you at work. We want to see your name magnified. We want to see people fall in love with you. And we believe that you can do it. Continue that work this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.